to the Ephesians, and uh, if you don't have a Bible, maybe someone from the back could uh, pass some out. I really want you to see these scriptures with your own eyes. Maybe you can look on with a a friend of yours if you don't have one with you. It's so important to uh, understand the Apostle Paul, remember he's writing from imprisonment. He's imprisoned because he's sharing the gospel. He's not imprisoned because he's done anything wrong. He's done everything right. And he's shared the gospel with people that he cares about, that he wants them to know what it is to, to, to know they have eternal life. And to experience, to begin to experience that eternal life now, even, even in this life. To begin to experience what it is to walk with God. To walk in the fullness of of, of God working in us by His Holy Spirit. It's a tremendous experience. And those of us who have walked with the Lord can tell you that it's worth it, that every part of it is worth it, and that it's an adventure. It is not boring. It is not something that is just kind of religio- religious ritual, that it's reality. It's more real than anything in this world to walk with God, even in an area, in a life, in a world that is opposed to Him. It's opposed to Him. And that opposition is no more clearly seen than by the fact that his spokesperson, the Apostle Paul, is in prison for sharing the gospel. But the gospel's not in prison, as he points out in Philippians chapter 1. And he is writing this letter. You might remember, some of you might remember, that in Acts chapter 20, when when he visited the Ephesian elders, remember he said, this will be the last time you'll see my face. Now, that was before the imprisonment that he's experiencing at the time he writes this letter. So they haven't seen him for probably three or four years by this point, from 58 A.D. to 61 A.D., and they won't see him again here on earth. But he is still concerned about him. He had a strong relationship that he developed with them when he was there amongst them for three whole years. He taught them from the Scriptures. He taught them about the Lord Jesus. He taught them about the plan of God. He taught them about what it is to have eternal life and to know it and to experience it. So now here he is in prison in Rome, and he's thinking about these people, and he's concerned about their ongoing testimony, their ongoing spiritual growth. So what's he going to say to them? What's he going to write to them? That's what this letter in Ephesians tells us. You remember we looked at last time, at the end of chapter 1, he had this, this prayer. He began in verse 15, that, that uh, when he heard of their faith for the, in the Lord Jesus and their love for all the saints, he didn't cease to give thanks for them, making mention of them in prayer. And then he brings this threefold prayer request. And what were the three things that he prayed for for them? Anybody remember what we looked at the other night? What, were the, what was the first thing that he requested of the Lord that he would do for them? In, in uh, wisdom and revelation, in the knowledge of him, and that they might know three things, right? In that wisdom and revelation, he expands that into three things. And the first thing is that they might know what is the hope of His calling, right? He talked to them in the first 14 verses of the letter of chapter 1. He explained to them their calling. They were called of God through the gospel. When we hear the gospel, every time we hear it, God is calling. He's reaching out to our hearts. He wants us to have a relationship with Him. He made us for that. And we're estranged from Him until we come to a relationship with Him through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the only way we can have a relationship with God, our Creator. 
He wants to be our redeemer. And so he reaches out the hope of their calling. And then secondly, this is in verse 18 of chapter 1, that you might know what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And we'll look at that some a little bit tonight and more on Sunday, Lord's Day morning. And then thirdly, that they might know, verse 19, what is the exceeding greatness of his power. His power at work in your life. And mine, God wants us to know by experience His power at work in our lives. He's not just looking for people to be religious robots. He's looking for people that are experiencing the life of God in them and other people can see it in us. They know. What's that power like? He says, well, he compares it to two things, to two events, historical events that happened. One is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ, he, was, he had died on the cross, don't forget. He died not for himself, but for others, for you and me. He died for us on that cross. He's the Son of God. God can't die, but he submitted himself to death that he might save others who trust in Him, who trust in His death as being payment for our sins. Because God demands that there be a payment for sin. He is holy. He, he can't look it aside. He can't sweep it under the rug. Our sin has to be dealt with, and this is His way, God's way of dealing with it. Aren't you glad He did? <laughs> and, and then He proved that the Lord Jesus' death was sufficient as payment for our sins, by raising the Lord Jesus out from the dead. Remember the tomb? They rolled away the stone, and the tomb was empty. And there are two locations you can go to. We're not sure if either one of them is exactly the location of the tomb of our Lord Jesus there in Jerusalem. But there are two of them you can go to, and they're both empty. He's not there. Because the Bible tells us that 40 days after that, He ascended into heaven, exalted to the Father's right hand, the place of all power and authority and dominion, a name above every name that's ever named, far above all principality and power, he tells us in verse 21, made to be head over his church, an exalted position. And that brings us where we want to come to tonight. Chapter 2 and verse 1. Because you notice chapter 2 really begins as a continuation of that, that statement at the end of chapter 1. And what he's going to do is he's going to talk about, he had just been talking about the exceeding greatness of God's power at work in you, in us, he says, right? And it's like the power he used to raise Jesus Christ from the dead, resurrection power. And, he, and he's going to say, and you know what? That power at work in you can raise you from spiritual death. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior here tonight, you are spiritually dead, according to the Bible. This is what he says in verse 1 of chapter 2. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. You see that? Dead. D-E-A-D. You were dead. But if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you've been made alive. That took resurrection power to effect that, to make that change happen. And then he goes on to explain 
What did that death look like? Because sometimes, for even those of us who know the Lord as Savior, we sometimes forget what we were saved from. He wants us to understand here in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, what we were saved from and what we're saved to. Okay? We need to understand that in order to really allow it to change our lives. God says, you've got to understand what I've done to you. He does it in the moment, in the, in the flink, twinkling of an eye. He does it that quickly when we go from death to life, when we trust the Lord Jesus our Savior. And at that moment, we don't understand what's happened. We know we trusted the Lord, and we have friends around us that want to encourage us. And then later on, we learn about baptism and getting baptized and then participating in the local work of testimony for the Lord. And then God says, as we begin to grow as young Christians, He says, Now, I want you to know what I did to you. I want you to know what you were saved from. And I want you to know what you were saved to. So the verses 1 through 3, he explains what we were saved from. And look at this. this is, you talk about psychology. This is biblical psychology. Psychology just means study of the soul. Suke is the soul. Logos, study, the study of the soul. And so there's biblical psychology and there's secular psychology, which leaves God out of it. And we don't believe in that. I don't anyway. But I do believe in biblical psychology. Look at what he says. In which you once walked. Walk there is the idea of our whole lifestyle. When you walk, you, every day you walk, you, take, you put one step in front of you. It's your whole life, right? can be pictured as a walk in this world. He says, you once walked according to the course of what? This world. Well, if you once walked according to the course of this world, you don't walk according to the course of this world now, right? What is it that guides us now? The Scriptures, right? God, by the Holy Spirit, using the Scriptures. We do not walk according to the course of this world anymore, but we used to. And everyone who is lost... Tonight, and, and people we might meet later on tonight, they are all walking according to the course of this world. They may not realize it. Say, no, I just make my decisions, and I make my own decisions. No, you don't. You think you make your own decisions, but you are influenced by different things. And one of the things you're influenced by is this world system around us. And it uses the media, and it uses the internet, and it uses the television, and it uses radio, and it uses music, and it uses all kinds of things to influence your mind and mine. That's what he means by this world, the course of this world. And this world, the world that he's talking about here, is everything in this world, looking at everything in this world, but leaving God out of it. You look at your work, you look at your school, you look at your friends, you look at your parents, you look at your values. Is God in them or is God out of them? See, for a Christian, God is in them. He's in everything that we think about and everything we are involved in. But for a non-Christian, God is left out of them, willfully. The phrase in 
in the book of Revelation for the people that are left here on earth going through that time of tribulation in the, in the book of Revelation. The repeated phrase is those who dwell on the earth. Those who dwell on the earth. You say, well, we all dwell on the earth. Christians dwell on the earth too. No, what he means by earth dwellers is people who live on the earth and have no concept of God in their life. They may know about God, but God has been put out of their life. And they're living their life and making their decisions, and they're not taking into account what God says in His Word. And so, that's what he's describing here. We're in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 2. So, first of all, they walk according to the course of this world. Secondly, according to the prince of the power of the air. Who's he talking about there? That's kind of a long way of describing. He's talking about the devil. He's talking about Satan. <laughs> the prince of the power of the air. That is, the, by describing him the power of the air, he is not a material creature. He doesn't have a material being like we do. He doesn't have skin and bones. That's material, right? He's a spiritual being. We can't see him. He's a spirit. But he's very real. <laughs> and he is a creature. He's not God. He wants to be God. He thinks he's God. But he's not God. And we have to realize that. But the thing that's sad about people who don't know Jesus Christ as Savior, they are following him and don't even realize it. Now, they may not be Satan worshipers. And they may not be going to Satan satanic cults to get any of their instruction, but he is in charge of this entire world system. Satan is. He's very intelligent. More intelligent than people are. And so man thinks he's thought of a lot of the things in this creation, but you know what we find out? Man probably hasn't thought of a lot of them. A lot of them Satan has helped men to think of by giving them different ideas that are contrary to God. A lot of the philosophic systems, a lot of the false religions of this earth, they come from Satan. They don't even come from human imagination. That's something to think about, huh? The prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Who are the sons of disobedience? People who won't submit to the Word of God, and especially the Gospel of Jesus Christ. They wouldn't like to think of themselves as sons of disobedience. But God has commanded all men everywhere to do what? To repent. And if they're not repenting and coming to Christ, they're in disobedience to God's command, aren't they? And that's the highest form of disobedience there is. They may be disobedient in other things too. But the first thing that God's concerned about is, what have you done with my son? He came down here. He died for you. He suffered greatly for you. What have you done with him? And that will be the question he will ask you. If you're an unbeliever here tonight, he will ask you that at the great white throne judgment. What did you do with my son? How did you respond to him? You heard about him? 
You heard of him. You maybe sang about him. You heard him on the radio, heard him at soccer, heard him at television. <coughs> what did you do with what you heard? How did you respond to him? That's what God's going to ask. He's going to ask all men and women everywhere that question. It's important to think about now, isn't it? Before we die. <laughs> because after death, this, that's the, all that's left is a judgment. There's no opportunity after we die to say, Oh, oh now, I, now I want it, Lord. Now I, can, now I want Jesus Christ. Can I have him now? No. Your opportunity is while you're alive. Now. According to the Bible. And you don't know... For all we know, traveling around the ring road of this city is the vehicle that's going to put you into eternity tonight before you even get home to your beds tonight. You could be put into eternity in a horrible car wreck or other things. We hear about these kids that get bullets fly through their cars because they get in the crossfire of a couple of a gang fight and bullets are flying and, and they get hit, get killed, and they're gone. And that's it. After that, the judgment. <laughs> That's sobering to think about. We think, well, no, tomorrow's Saturday. Let's see, I'm going to do this tomorrow morning. I'm going to do this tomorrow afternoon. Maybe go out and do my, this with my friends tomorrow night. And then Sunday I'll do this. You don't know that you're going to have tomorrow. I don't know what I'm going to have tomorrow. But I know where I'm going to be if I die tonight. Or tomorrow, or Sunday, I know where I'm going to be. I know that from the Scriptures. And you can know that too, if you want to. But God only wants you if you want to come to Him. See? So He draws us through the Scriptures. It's interesting. He uses sons of disobedience here. You remember that idea of sonship? We looked at in chapter 1 in verse 5, having predestined us, believers, to adoptions as sons by Jesus Christ. So in chapter 1, those of us who are believers have been destined to be sons and daughters of God, see. Contrast that with chapter 2, verse 2, the spirit of the power of the air who now works in the sons of disobedience. And there's only those two categories. Sons of God, sons of disobedience. That makes it pretty easy to think about, doesn't it? Two categories. There's Cain and Abel. Two categories. There's Esau and Jacob. Two categories. God trying to make it easy for us. Among whom, verse 3 of chapter 2, among whom also... We all once conducted ourselves. We're in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3. Among whom also we all once conducted ourselves. Now, Paul was a Pharisee. He was a very religious person on the outside. The Pharisees were known for keeping the outside clean and nice, but inside they were full of all kinds of evil thoughts and things, right? Dead men's bones, as, he, as the Lord puts it. But on the outside, they looked really religious. They looked really holy. They wore special garments. And they wore special phylacteries and things on their head, and, and they had their hair a certain way, and everybody was to know they were religious people. Paul puts himself with those who were on the outside, sons of disobedience, even him, 
among whom also we all also walked. And then he describes it some more. In the lusts, the desires of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, just fulfilling our bodily appetites. You know people like that? And all they live for is their bodily appetites. And they say, well, God gave me these appetites. He gave me these desires. He gave me these lusts. And, gave me these, and I've got to satisfy them. I've got to be complete, right? You've heard people say that? Well, God gave them to us, but He gave them to be fulfilled in a certain specific way, right? He didn't give them to us that they would be totally out of control, they're to be under control, under the control of our mind, but under the control of a redeemed mind, not a lost mind, right? Because here he says, the lust of the flesh and of the mind. And, and the mind here is false thinking. False thinking about this world. False thinking about God. False thinking about Jesus Christ and who he is. False thinking about His cross and what it means. False thinking about ourselves. And maybe we think falsely that we can clean ourselves up enough that maybe God will receive us. Maybe if I do enough good works, God will receive me. That's from the devil. See? Because he's going to say here in verse 8 that it's only by grace that we can be saved. We can't be saved by our good works. You can pile them up as big as you want to. And they won't save you. Isn't it important to understand that now while you're young? Before you live a whole life going the wrong direction? Right? Among whom we also once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. See, there, there's no hierarchy here. All sinners are in, are in a bad place before God. And we who are believers, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ here tonight. I'm not ashamed to tell you that. I'm a follower. I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. I've been saved through faith in Him and in Him alone. And I'm a child of God. And my sins are completely forgiven. And I know where I came from, and I know where I'm going. I know who I am. All because of God and His work in me, by the Scriptures, by His Holy Spirit. And that same thing He wants to give to you tonight. He wants to give you a complete understanding of who you are before Holy God. He wants to save you. He wants that for you, see. So, we were just as... I was just like... We were all, Brother Malcolm, myself, Brother Jamel, we were all just as the others. Lost as a goose. Wandering around in darkness. Some of us, I can't speak for them, but some of us, I thought I was okay. Because, you know, I didn't do drugs my, with my friends, and I didn't live in an immoral lifestyle, so I thought, well, I'm better than them. So that gospel that he's talking about here, that must be for them. <laughs> but God had to show me, no, 
That gospel is for you too. Because in your mind, you ju- you'd like to be just like them. You're just afraid to do it. And they're not. But he said it's just as bad to think the thoughts of lust for a woman as it is to commit them. Right? As a man thinks in his heart, so he is. See? So a lost, lost person may think, because I don't do certain actions, I'm okay. Yeah, but what about your mind? God sees your mind. He knows what you're thinking right now. God's that big. <laughs> Just as the others. But then he begins in verse 4 to explain the happy side of the gospel. Don't forget, verses 1 through 3 are an important part of the gospel too, right? A person has to understand they're lost before they can be saved. It's the same method he uses in the book of Romans, right? First three chapters, trying to show that all are guilty before God. Romans 3.19, so that every mouth may be stopped and all become guilty before God. Because when all becomes, realize they're guilty before God, then there's hope for them to turn to God, to seek His help. What He has described in verses 1 through 3, I've described as powerlessness to save ourselves or helplessness. Would you agree with me that's a good description of that? I mean, a person that he's describing here, wow. You say, I wouldn't want to meet that person on a dark alley. That's awful. Children of wrath. But you see that person in the mirror every morning when you look at yourself. If you're not saved here tonight, that's who you see right there. Tonight, that can change if you want it to. But God, verse 4. And that word but is a word of contrast. But God. And what is it about God he's going to emphasize? He is rich in what? Mercy. What does the word mercy mean? Nobody knows. What does it mean that he is merciful? It means what? Somebody raise a hand. Go ahead. Wow! Really? That 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 would be that's good news, isn't it, Roger? He's not giving us what we deserve. If you could use a picture of it, say you got pulled over by a policeman. You're driving your car, and and maybe you know you were going a little too fast through a certain area, and you get pulled over by a policeman, and he's coming up to your door, and you're going, oh, no, what am I going to tell mom and dad? Oh, no, what am I going to do? And is my insurance rate going to go up? You know, you worry about it, and then he comes up, and he says, well, I could write you a ticket because you're going five miles an hour over the speed limit, but you know what? I'm just going to give you a warning. Woo! That's mercy. Because he had every legal right to give us that ticket, right? But he withholds what we did deserve. That's mercy. And God, he's a wealthy person, God is. And one of the things he's wealthy in is mercy. Now, 
when you mess up, when I mess up, you don't always get mercy from people, do you? You always get mercy from your parents? No. You always get mercy from your friends every time you mess up? No. You get mercy from your teachers, your coach? No. But God, who is rich in mercy, will never run out. I need a God like that. I don't know about you. I need a God who is going to be understanding, patient, merciful. Because I look at verses 1 through 3 and I say, you're, you're talking about me here. <laughs> and I need mercy. But not only that, because of His great love with which He loved us. Now those of you who are Christians tonight, that is a great verse, 2-4 of Ephesians, to memorize. I know oftentimes I like to hear different people quote scriptures about God's love, but oftentimes I hear Christians quoting Jeremiah 31, 3, his, his everlasting love for Israel, right? And, and there is an application there for us, but dispensationally it can lead to wrong thinking to see that Jeremiah 31, 3, when we have a verse right here that is definitely speaking to Gentiles and the church, Right? Ephesians 2, verse 4 is the verse that is most direct. There's another great verse in John 15. But here, God who is rich because of His great love with which He has loved us, decided He would write a poem in the sky, and if we're looking up at a certain hour, we'll see it. Is that what it says? God can write poems in the sky when He wants to. I mean, what He does with the clouds, I love to watch sometimes. But... That isn't going to help me and he can get saved, is it? No, even when we were dead in trespasses, just like he said in verse 1, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Now, if mercy is God withholding what we do deserve, what is grace then? How is grace different from mercy? Come on, you guys know that. What is, what's the biblical definition for grace? God freely giving us what we don't deserve. Mercy is withholding from us what we do deserve. Grace is giving to us what we would never be able to earn or deserve or merit. That's what it means. So he says, how is it that we are saved? By His grace. He has to do it. We can't do it ourselves. And not only that, in verse 6, He raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That means in God's thinking and His mind, positionally, we are already enthroned with Jesus Christ. Which makes us princes and princesses, right? Since He's the King. That's already true of us. The moment we're saved, we haven't done anything for Him yet at this point. So this is, this is God's gift. That's why I, I, I just got to wonder. 
when I go to heaven, the angels, I know the angels are going to say, why didn't God offered a gift like this and none of you received it? Why didn't human beings line up around the block for this? We don't understand it because the angels don't have any gift like this given to them. They had a, a decision to choose, and when they just chose to line up with Satan, they chose their destiny forever. God could have done that with us too. But He offers grace. <laughs> and it's amazing that more people don't want it. People get so hardened, so selfish, so opposed to God, so thinking that they can do it themselves. And that's all satanic deception. The prince of the power of the air, see? The course of this world. That's how this world thinks. That's how this world wants to influence you. That's why the media constantly bombards you with that kind of thinking and leaves God out of everything. You notice that? They want to talk about global warming or climate change. They leave God totally out of it. They don't suspect ever that it could be a judgment from God that He could be changing these things. No, no, no. It's all got to be man-made because all they think about is everything under the sun. Everything just with man. No God. And God's the Creator being pushed out of His own universe. And just because He is relatively silent about it, the world gets bolder. <laughs> the world gets stronger about it. But God says in His Word, just because I'm silent, that doesn't mean I agree. And there's going to become a time when I'm going to roar like a lion. <laughs> And then they'll know, but it'll be too late. That time is coming very, very soon. The Bible prophesies it. Everything in our world is set up for this. What he describes in the prophetic books that is going to happen, it's all set. The table is totally set. He could do it tonight if he wanted to. He says, verse 7, What's the purpose? Why did God in His grace want to save us? Why did He do it? That in the ages to come, not only in this age, but in the ages to come, in the future, He might show the exceeding riches of His grace First it was rich in mercy, verse 4. Now it's rich in grace, in verse 7. In His kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In other words, those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ tonight, we are going to be on display as showing the kindness and grace of God forever. We're already doing that now but especially in our glorified bodies in the ages to come. He's going to show, look, this person, you know how lost they were? But I saved them, God will be able to say. And the whole of creation, the angels, the demonic realm, all will be able to see what God did and give Him glory along with us. So he summarizes it in verses 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved 
through faith. So grace is the gift of God. Faith is our receiving of that gift. I can offer you a gift, but if you don't receive it, is it yours? While it's still in my hand, it's not yours, right? If you don't receive it, it's not yours. You may know about it, you may look at it, you may examine it, you may be in awe of it, but if you haven't received it, it's not yours. And if God is offering you eternal life tonight, and you haven't received it, you don't have it yet. And you're still lost, and you're going to a bad place if you stay on that same course that you're on. But he says it's through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Now, the gift of God here is not the faith. The gift of God is either the grace or the saving, either one of those two. But it's not the faith, because faith is the receiving of the gift. God offers salvation as a gift. Faith is the receiving and the response from our side. Our response to that gift, see? He doesn't force that gift on anyone. He doesn't say, well, this person is going to be predestined, so they have to receive the gift, and this one's not going to be predestined, so they're not going to receive the gift. God does, that does, the Bible doesn't teach that. Some men teach that, but the, the Bible doesn't teach that. Bible teaches that God offers that gift to how many people? The world, everybody, right? <laughs> there are no second-class citizens before God. He offers it to everyone, the same. Whosoever will may come. Whoever wants to can come and take of the waters of life freely, see? And he emphasizes in verse 9, it's not of works, lest anyone should boast, because if it was of works, it wouldn't be grace, Right? But if it also, if it was of works, if we could do something to earn our salvation, we'd be bragging about it, wouldn't we? Just like people today in our world, always bragging about the things they do. They may do good works in their community. They may do, give money to the poor. They may help in a school. But they make sure a building gets named after them, or a street gets named after them, or a park gets named after them. So they can boast. That's not God's way. It's not of works. Because he doesn't let, there is no boasting of men before God, as he puts it in Romans 4. And then he adds in verse 10, For we are his workmanship. We are his workmanship. That word could be translated masterpiece. We are his masterwork or masterpiece. Every one of us who is a born again Christian is a masterpiece of God. See? We are intricate. Our personalities are involved. Our life experiences are different. The environment in which we were raised is different for every one of us. I mean, even the marks in our hands are different, every one of us. That's why they can use our hand fingerprints as a tracking device, because every one of us is unique and special to God. 
his masterpiece. Those of us who are believers. And we need to remember that we are created in Christ Jesus. And this is why I mentioned on Sunday that he's talking about the new creation, isn't he? We were created in Christ Jesus when? As believers. When were we created in Christ Jesus? When were we, let me step it back uh, historically before that. When were we created in Adam? The moment we were conceived in the womb, right? The moment we were conceived in the womb of our mother, we were created in Adam, the first man. But the Bible says we need to be born again. That that physical creation is not enough to get us to heaven. In fact, the physical creation brings us under judgment because we're in Adam. And God says, apart from the new birth, you'll never even see the kingdom of God. So you must be born again. And being born again is being born in Christ Jesus. The second man. So Adam created a whole humanity after him. And then Christ Jesus is creating a whole humanity after him. So we who are believers in Jesus Christ, we recognize the privilege of being sons of God, being adopted into his family. But we also recognize his responsibility too, right? That we are created in Christ Jesus to do whatever we want. Is that what it says? What does it say there in verse 10? Created in Christ Jesus unto good works. And what kind of good works? The kind which God prepared beforehand that we should do what? Walk in them. So he already talked about God in chapter 1. Before the foundation of the earth, he planned, he purposed in the good pleasure of his will to save those who would trust in Jesus Christ, his son, and Christ's death on the cross for them. And not only to save them, but to create them new in Christ Jesus that they might do the good works that He prepared before for them to do and to live a life. That's what walk in them means, right? That means to live a life for God through Jesus Christ by His Spirit. We can't do it ourselves. He knows that. He's given us His Spirit. And we can only do it as we walk according to the Holy Spirit, see? can't do it ourselves. We can't save ourselves, and we can't sanctify ourselves either. We can't live one day in holiness apart from God doing it through us by His Spirit. And that's why we need to be being filled with the Spirit every day, see? Being filled with the Word of God. Being filled with the Spirit. Now, you notice verse 10 ends with the idea of walking. Verse 2 began with the idea of walking, but there are two different types of walking, aren't they? 
In verse 2, we once walked according to the course of this world, but in verse 10, now we're going to walk in the good works that God has prepared for us. And you realize He has customized special good works, specialized good works that only you can do? Your friend next to you can't do them? Your cousin can't do them? Only you can do them. That's part of his masterpiece. Then when you get down to chapter 4, verse 1, he'll build off that same word of walking. He says, I beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. To walk worthy of the calling. What calling? The calling of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, for people who know the Lord as Savior, there's a worthiness in our life that He wants to be wants to see expressed by our testimony. And we can only do that by God. This is what Paul is praying for these Ephesian Christians. This is what it, what it means when he says in chapter 1 and verse 19, then what is the exceeding greatness of His power toward us who believe? That kind of power, God bless you, that kind of power He wants to see working in every one of us. First in salvation, being made a new creation in Christ. And then in the good works that he has prepared beforehand that we would do for him service, he means, right? And he's going to talk about spiritual gifts in chapter 4. He's going to talk about how we build up and edify each other and our responsibilities to each other. He's going to talk in chapter 5 and in chapter 6 about our responsibilities to our parents and our responsibilities to our spouse if we're married and our responsibilities to our children if we're married and have children and our responsibilities to those that we work with and work for. Because human relationships are important to God. But our primary responsibility is to Him and to His church, to our fellow believers. That's why you're here tonight. You'll elaborate on that in the second half of chapter 2. But let's just close with this thought. He has presented to you tonight a privilege in these first ten verses of chapter 2. Have you availed yourself of it? Have I? Are we availing ourselves of the privilege? We may understand the privilege. I hope you have a clearer picture tonight maybe than you've ever had before of the privilege he's offering. But what have you done with it? Have you availed yourselves of it? That's what it means to make it real in our lives, right? Secondly, he's emphasized our concern for all the saints. We didn't look at that in such detail tonight, but we looked at that the other night in the understanding what it means to his inheritance is in the saints. He's going to emphasize in chapter 2 the togetherness of the saints, being built up together into this holy temple in which he dwells by his spirit. The temple was the place where people came to know God, to experience God, to learn about God. If we're His temple now, guess what? He, he wants people to come to us 
to know God, to experience God, to experience worship and prayer and all the things that happen in the Old Testament temple. And then thirdly, our purpose. We are His workmanship. We understand what He's done for us in saving us by the death of His Son. We should want to enter into the works, the good works that He has laid out before us that only we can do. And we can only do them by His Spirit. Now, is that the kind of God you could praise and worship and adore? That's, that's one I can, I'll tell you that. I was raised under a God that had a billy club in one hand and a lollipop in the other. And if I did good, I got the lollipop. And if I did bad, he hit me with a stick. That's not the kind of God. That's Satan. But I didn't know. He, didn't, he wasn't identified that way. He, I was told he was God, the true God, see. And maybe you were raised like that. But it was a lie. God here is presenting you truth from His Word. It's up to you now what you'll do with it. If you have any questions, talk to any of us afterwards. We'll be glad to help you and show you from the Scriptures how you can know before you leave tonight that you're going to be going to heaven, to the right place, after you die. And not to judgment. The judgment we all deserve. So, Father, we thank You, O Lord. We thank you for everyone that's here tonight. We thank you for each of these dear souls. Every one of them. We know that you love them. We know that you demonstrated that love in that while each of us was, while we were still sinners, you sent your son to die for us anyway. You did it. It's historically true. It's an event that happened some 2,000 years ago, and it's been validated in the Bible and in secular history as well. It's irrefutable evidence of your love. No one can say you don't love when we look at the cross of Jesus Christ. But, Lord, we're asking tonight that if there's someone here tonight that hasn't responded to that love, hasn't opened their heart, hasn't softened their heart towards you and towards the Lord Jesus who loves them and wants to save them. Help them to understand in a greater way tonight before they leave. Help them to understand how important it is to deal with this. That this, there is an urgency to this. That today is the day of salvation. There may not be a tomorrow. And that through faith in Christ, they can know that they are saved and a new creation in Him. For those of us who do know you as Savior, Lord, help us, help us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. It's a high and holy calling. But by you, all things are possible. Help us to fulfill what you've called us to do and to be. And you'll get the glory. So we pray in the Lord Jesus' precious name. Amen.